Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So our guest today is Tiana Lowe, who is a columnist with Washington Examiner. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about kind of a weird developing story that's been going on the last couple of weeks, something that's referred to as kind of within conservatism. Some folks have called it a conservative civil war, although it seems to mainly involve like the Q&A at various conservative events. So as far as civil wars go, it's it's kind of minor. It's also known as the, the Groper War, G-R-O-Y-P-E-R, so not like Groper like Harvey Weinstein. Well, first off, what is a groper? <laughs> Let's start there. So the whole groper, groper uh, debacle, it's kind of the, so as an emblem, he's sort of a second iteration of Pepe the Frog. He's the obese version of Pepe the Frog. That was, that was you know, the frog that the alt-right sort of appropriated during the 2016 election and immediately thereafter. So what the groper war actually is, it's a coalition of members of the alt-right, including overt white supremacists like Nick Fuentes, who have um, who have sort of divided a very wide expanse of the conservative movement, ranging from people as diehard MAGA Trump supporters, Charlie Kirk and Sebastian Gorka, to people as, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself never Trump, but Trump skeptical as myself. Um, And the way that they've sort of divided them is by, you know, really challenging the most unquestionably racist aspects of what they believe to be conservative sympathies. Fuentes and and his friends have been crashing Ben Shapiro events, Charlie Kirk events, Dan Crenshaw events, expressly challenging their allegiance to Israel, expressly denouncing what they believe to be pandering to the left, which most of us just recognize as anti-racism. But yeah, it, on paper, it really shouldn't be a big deal because Nick Fuentes is just a, a guy who YouTubes in his mother's basement. But it, it has really galvanized a lot of people online. And frustratingly enough, very formerly mainstream figures like Michelle Malkin have come out in support of Fuentes. Yeah, that, so that's something I want to get to in a little bit because that's a little weird. But uh, let's talk a little bit about who Nick Fuentes is. I guess he, he's he's young. He's like I, I've I've seen him described as like twenty one or twenty three. It's somewhere in that range. So uh, he he's very young. He's got his own YouTube show, which seems to consist mostly of him like just going on shock value types of uh, rants about the Holocaust or. Jim Crow or or all sorts of all sorts of other extreme extreme stuff. Yeah, so I mean, Fuentes was an extremely fringe figure that no one was really paying attention to until rather recently, and it's mainly cuz he I think the incident that kind of sparked this iteration of everything aside from the fact that Trump by policy has governed a lot more like a true conservative than like a closet racist. Aside from that, there was this instance where Turning Point USA, they had hired some girl named Ashley to be a brand ambassador for them, whatever that means. 
And she went to a party uh, where I believe it was Fuentes and Ollie Alexander, who's another alt-right figure, and Turning Point fired her as a result. The idea being that do not cavort with racists while you're representing our brand. And so then since then, Fuentes decided to go to war with Turning Point, which is just interesting because Turning Point has been seen as about as much of a Trump establishment in in the conservative youth movement than anything. You know, Yaf has been pro-Trump, but not vehemently so, more of like the Ted Cruz variety. YAL, which is a, a Young Americans for Liberty, is far more on like the libertarian end. But Turning Point USA was really supposed to be the Trump home for the future of youth conservatism. And so that, and, you know, this all came to a head when uh, the groper, the gropers, uh, decided to take down uh, the UCLA event with Donald Trump Jr. Yeah, it seems like kind of a weird way to express your support for the Trump administration and like the, you know, show that you're more MAGA than Charlie Kirk or whatever is that, oh, well, we're going to go, we're going to go uh, protest the Donald Trump Jr. event and, you know, yell so they can't talk or whatever. Yeah, it it, it really is something else. And And it just goes to show that it's less the idea that Trump is an avatar for any real policy for them, because it's not as though the finer points of Trump's immigration policy, which have been more recently introduced, were there on the campaign trail with him. You know, for I think a lot of these folks, which, again, I don't think are a majority or even large minority of the Republican Party, for a lot of them, they just kind of hope that Trump secretly held the same racial animus that they do. And evidently, he doesn't. And that's been a real point of contention. You know, a, a big thing that that has that has really peeved the alt-right about the Trump administration is their open allegiance to Israel. I really don't think that they expected him to be so good on that uh, on that front as 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 it is. So it's sort of any way in which they think that they can push the immigration debate in a more racialized direction and thus the party in a more racist direction, they're willing to take it. So I guess I have to wonder how much of this is sincere versus how much of it is trolling and the reason the reason i asked is you know if you talk like i was looking around at some of the commentary on this and some people they will defend this groper stuff in you know very high-minded terms of well we have you know we have these issues about immigrate with conservative ink right and you know there are issues about policy towards israel or immigration or uh lgbt stuff where we think you know Charlie Kirk and other folks are not taking a what we believe is like the true conservative position on all that. And, you know, there obviously there's arguments to be had. But then, you know, I went and I was looking at some of the, the questions that we're asking and it was stuff like, you know, the Jews knew about 9-11, right? <laughs> or the USS Liberty, which is this incident from the Six-Day War where Israel kind of mistakenly attacked a U.S. warship that was out there. And I guess that there are conspiracy theories that they did it on purpose because, you know, when you're in a you're in the midst of a war for your existence, the, the one thing you want to do is attack a uh, a friendly superpower for no reason. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so but, you know, so some of it actually reminded me of there was a thing a few years ago where young people would just randomly start, you know, Bush did 9-11, right, type irony jokes. And so I wonder how much of this is, oh, no, these are people who are they're just really 
anti-Semitic and they hate the Jews and how much of it is they just want to try and get a rise out of people and that it, it's not that they're really serious about policy. They're just trying to be provocative. Well, I mean, I, th- I think who they're targeting as conservative ink, quote unquote, just goes to show how how deeply unserious this is as a matter of policy and how much this really is. I mean, this is fundamentally an issue about is the conservative movement an anti-racist movement or is it an aggressively racist and identitarian movement? I mean, they've been targeting everyone, everyone who is willing to disavow the most explicit and vile forms of racism they've been willing to target. For example, one of one of their new targets now is uh, Ian Miles Chong, who I mean, he and I have sparred quite a bit online when it comes to Trump's policies and whatnot. But I mean, Ian's definitely, you know, not a racist at all. And it doesn't matter how pro-Trump he is and how much he supports the Trump agenda. Same thing with Will Chamberlain, who's like the uh, publisher of Human Events, another super pro-Trump guy. And he's still coming under this fire just as much as I am because, you know, he doesn't think the Holocaust was made up and he believes that uh, the American identity doesn't know race, you know? And it's been interesting to see because you have people like Sebastian Gorka who are strongly in favor of build the wall, reducing legal immigration and all of that. And they have no problem disavowing Nick Fuentes. And the Michelle Malkins of the conservative movement who have seen them as a vehicle uh, to find, you know, to gain momentum for this immigration issue that, again, has increasingly been been drawn upon racial lines. And that's a real danger for us. You, Michelle Malkin is not a nobody. I mean, she's been she's been a bigwig in conservative media since I was in elementary school. So that she sees a viable constituency in this groper group is quite dangerous because maybe there is something there. And that's why it's important that regardless of how you feel about the president, we're able to come forward and say that this, I mean, there's no more eloquent way of putting it than flagrant racism is wrong and incompatible with the values that define conservatism. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Malcolm thing, which it was also a bit of a head scratcher because she gave a speech saying, basically criticizing Ben Shapiro for attacking Fuentes and these other proper people. And Young Americans for Freedom. I think I think that's where she gave the speeches at one of their events. And afterwards, they cut they cut ties with her. And as you say, she was pretty mainstream figure. Has been involved in the conservative movement for a long time. Never. I don't think there's any indication that she has any big issue with Israel or any you know you know the Holocaust or anything like that. She is like. She's all she has always been very focused on the immigration issue and and pushing like a restrictionist line. So that that seemed to be to the extent that I could make any sense of what she was thinking. That seemed to be it, that if you start disavowing or denouncing people for being called racist, then next thing you know, that's going to shut down discussion of immigration, I I guess. Although it seems to me that there's it comes a certain point where you really kind of need to cut your losses, you know, (laughs) Yeah, no. And I mean, this is one where Michelle Mulkin has used language that I think has been questionable, especially in like the after 9-11 era about race. But let's just go ahead and say that she herself may not hold an iota of racial animus in her heart. Right. And she's probably not a white supremacist, right? Well, certainly not a white supremacist, but and and it doesn't look like an anti-Semite either. But if you are willing to embrace someone who equated 
the Holocaust with cookies baking in an oven and is in an attempt to deny that it ever even happened. That's just as bad. It's just as bad to be sympathetic to racism in order to advance your own political goals as it is to be racist itself, um, because you should know that 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 what you're doing is wrong. And with regards to Shapiro, I mean, the really unfortunate thing about the position that Ben is in is that, you know, Ben is obviously receives all the left wing flack. You know, Media Matters is always going after him. And yet he's probably the most vocal activist against right-wing racism that we have. And so he's, I mean, during the 2016 election, I think he was number, he was the, I think it was the ADL went through and found who was targeted the most by the alt-right. And it was Ben Shapiro, more than anyone on the left, more than Jake Tapper. Right. Um, yeah, it was like 40% so, of all the, I think, I, I think it was like 40% of all the anti-Semitic, you know, hate was directed to him, this one person. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so it's the fact that Michelle Malkin doesn't understand why why Ben would be railing against this is, you know, it's it's willful ignorance at best. And also the case that the case that I think all of us are making are not that these people should be banned from Twitter. Like no one's trying to silence them. It's just the idea of what little intellectual capacity they have. We can debate. And the debate is, did the Holocaust happen? And is racism bad? Those are pretty quick debates. So there's not any reason to platform those people. Again, not saying even that Nick Fuentes should be banned off Twitter unless if he, you know, directly is inciting violence, which I don't think he's done yet. But is there any reason to elevate these people and act like they're a legitimate voice? No, they are so far outside of the Overton window and that much just seems obvious. Because while they're there, then we're stuck conflating racism with actual policy discrepancies. No, I don't think everyone who is more Trumpy on immigration policy is racist. And that's a absurd position to start from. But that debate, especially from where the left sees it, looks a lot more muddled if the Michelle Malkins of the world are willing to link arms with Nick Fuentes. So speaking of of TIFFs, you just recently wrote about this, uh, uh, this, I guess, war of words between FedEx and the New York Times. Walk us through what's going on there. And, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the TCGA, the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But tell us what was going on with that, that little dispute between FedEx and the New York Times. So the New York Times did an expose about how FedEx was able to bring their federal tax bill to zero in fiscal year 2018. And this wasn't a remarkable report because it exposed anything illegal or anything corrupt. The point that the New York Times was obviously trying to make was that was that Trump's tax bill is bad because corporations are paying less money. Now, Fred Smith, the founder and chairman of FedEx, came back firing as opposed to doing the normal cower to the mob type thing. He didn't bring up how much money they donate to charity, whatever. So he brought up that FedEx has been serving the country for decades and that the New York Times paid zero dollars in taxes prior to Trump's tax bill. (laughs) Now, I, I think that Smith kind of missed what the key argument here is. The key argument is that FedEx was able to increase their in, their number of employees by some 50,000, and they now employ a quarter million people. That's a huge deal, especially for a delivery company in in an industry where automation is running rampant. It's definitely correlated with, um, with the passage of Trump's tax cut. And there are aspects of the tax cuts that I think 
You can question the value of the child tax credit. You can question specific aspects. I, for one, dislike two things about the tax bill. One, that it didn't really simplify the tax code. And that, I mean, that is complexity as a subsidy. So that's something that I wish Republicans cared more about. There's no reason why people should need to have accountants to file taxes. But then second, I dislike that the tax cuts came without any spending cuts. But the one aspect that is an unequivocal good for the country is us cutting our corporate tax rate. 35 percent was so much more. It was not globally competitive. If you look at corporate tax rate in the European Union is, I think, like within half a point of the 21 percent that we have now. Mm. We're operating at 35 percent. We were bleeding jobs because people were going overseas so they didn't have to pay corporate taxes here. And now we were able to repatriate tens of billions of dollars. And and everyone's so obsessed with the idea of, oh, but companies are using this the money saved from the um, from the corporate tax cuts to initiate stock buybacks. Yeah, well, you're going to be really thankful for their stock buybacks when a recession hits, which we are overdue for. We will have a credit crunch unlike anything we've ever seen thanks to the Fed keeping rates at historic lows in a time of economic growth. And so when that recession h- hits and when we have and when companies have more capital investment ready to spend, that will be a bulwark for the economy. So uh, one of the uh, and I, I think that the the tax cuts may reappear in the in the 2020 election uh, as an issue because I keep seeing like Bernie today uh, was was making the point that what people pay for Netflix is more than what Netflix paid for their taxes or something like this. And I think he's made similar comments about Amazon. So I think this is going to come back and be an issue. And, and one of my concerns is, uh, you know, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was meant to spark foreign investment is supposed to spark repatriation of offshore dollars. And that hasn't had that hasn't happened as much as people like me were hoping what's going to happen. But I think that part of the reason for that is because of all this trade uncertainty, this sort of self, you know, self-inflicted trade war. And I think that that has actually created so much international uncertainty that multinationals, that corporations don't really want to bring dollars back and they don't really want to. And it's, it's making international investors skittish about investing in the United States. Do you, you know, what do you think about that? Do you share those, those type of concerns? Well, I mean, it's remarkable that the economy has stayed this good, given how bad this trade war has been. The irony being that it's the base that went from Obama to Trump that is being hurt the most. You know, I don't think farming will recover in its entirety ever after this. But um, it is remarkable that the trade war hasn't affected it more. I mean, our unemployment rate is the lowest in half a century. You know, inflation hasn't increased. The, our economic growth has remained stable. If not, it's not surging, but it's stable. Markets are excellent. So yeah, I mean, the the research that I've seen has been pretty clear that the trade war did heavily mitigate a lot of the benefits of the tax cuts. And again, I mean, tax cuts are always tricky because the real benefit of them are always corporate, not individual. But in order to make it politically expedient, you have to sell the individual tax cuts, too, because, I mean, corporate tax cuts trickle down and they trickle down to everyone. But that's not a very uh, winning selling point uh, for voters. But, um, I mean, again, Trump's 
Trump's biggest enemy is himself. He inherited a good economy, inflated it to a great one, and yet he still has to go on with this inane trade war. And the danger is that he's not doing so with the right messaging. You know, I think we see now with all the Hong Kong protests and people really holding the NBA's feet to the fire for their sycophancy to China, the, the, the ability for Trump to move the Overton window against China and convince the American people that it's worth taking a small hit in order to keep a dictatorship in check, that was how the messaging should have gone. But instead, the idea was that the trade war itself was was a meaningful end. You know, I mean, his his mercantile protectionism is not something that I think most of us free marketers like or agree with. But I, I, I hold out hope for the long-term benefits of the tax cut. I just hope that that the Trump administration, you know, there are rumors circulating that he wants to do a second round of tax cuts. No. Oh, gosh. Do a spending cut. <laughs> More deregulation. Simplify your tax code. Right now, I mean, the Republican Party is selling all, they're giving all dessert, no vegetables. We need vegetables, and that means we need spending cuts. Right, right. Well, another issue that is a topic that's already an issue, certainly when it comes to the more left-leaning candidates like Warren and Sanders, is income inequality. And if memory serves, it may have been a year or so ago, uh, I think that AOC, she she jumped on Twitter and was talking about being part of the Gini coefficient appreciation squad or something like that. And I, I, I seem to recall that you schooled her a bit on that. What it, What is the Gini coefficient? And, you know, I guess from your perspective, is all this talk about income inequality, is it overblown? And how important is it really? I, I've seen that. It's I dream a Gini, right? <laughs> is, that about, is that what we're talking about? So the Gini coefficient... The higher you go, the more unequal a society. And the, the the great irony about AOC's obsession with the Gini coefficient is that the states that are the most unequal by the Gini coefficient's rankings are California, New York, Louisiana, and D.C. So, I, I, I mean, this is why if you want to see where the left's policies go to die, it's California. That's where I'm from. And I've, I've seen how bad it, it's gotten over there. But, you know, this is the really sad thing about the Democratic Party's departure from Rawlsian liberalism. They can no longer look at specifically, let's say, the corporate tax cuts or whatnot and see how, thanks to them, real Wages, like real wages for workers, especially those in lower income brackets and especially for non-white workers, has increased markedly for the first time in over a decade. Instead of seeing that everyone's benefiting and if the rich are getting richer faster than the poor are entering the middle class, the modern left now thinks that's a bad thing because it's not – I mean this is why Warren's rhetoric just really gives the lie to their whole angle – it's not about maximizing total wealth, and everyone knows in order to do that, you need to have incentives for innovation. Instead, it's about punishing those who are too successful, punishing wealth, equalizing, even if it means that everyone is poor or on the net, we as a nation are poor. Okay, so let's talk about Jeffrey Epstein, who allegedly killed himself. I think you wrote something uh, a week or two ago about the story is an exemplification of the loss of trust in the media or institutions. Am I am I remembering that correctly? Well, yes. I mean, if you want what the war against elitism is, you know, I, I think as much as 
I think as much as the Josh Hollies and Marco Rubios of the GOP like to pretend that the elitist cabal is the Facebook engineer who lives in a in a San Francisco loft. No, that's not the war against elitism. Elitism is is exemplified by the Jeffrey Epstein story. Here you have prominent members of the media, prominent politicians, literal royalty all working together to protect a predator. You know, and, th- and this is one where, I mean, when I see that Jeff Bezos has hundreds of billions of dollars or however much he's worth, it doesn't make me upset. Instead, I'm glad that someone who's made my life easier, someone who employs hundreds of thousands of people, and someone who's growing the economy is able to benefit from their innovation. The way I see it, I'm like, I haven't taken substantial personal risks with my own finances and my own time to try and employ thousands of people that kind of bravery should be rewarded. However, when I see the photos of Jeffrey Epstein, when I see him with Naomi Campbell and Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton and even Donald Trump, and you know, these people were all hanging out together and they all knew what he was doing. They all knew and yet they silenced it. You know, ABC was sitting on this story for three years. Why? So that way they could secure an interview with Prince William and Kate Middleton. What have they ever done for anyone other than take a pretty picture? This is the elitism that should, this should unify TNLO and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, it was, it was leaked that they had, the ABC had said on the story, they immediately went out and did some real investigative journalism to try and find out who leaked the story so they could get them fired. And they may have screwed that up and got the wrong person, it sounds like. Yeah, no, and this is one, you have to ask, who are the people in the media who are, who are standing up against literal fake news and, you know, actual attacks on the free press. You have, so someone like Rachel Maddow, who is NBC's top-rated star, she and Chris Hayes are the only ones with the stones, and it makes sense because they're both virtually unfireable, to go on air and criticize NBC News for silencing Ronan Farrow's reporting in the hopes of covering up for Matt Lauer. Who's getting to the bottom of this whole ABC, CBS, Jeffrey Epstein story? It's Megyn Kelly, who is beholden to no one because she has the money and the fame to work on her own if she wants. You know, I mean, like, that's why what she's doing right now, just being independent and still doing her own work, that's wildly impressive. And it's important because she can afford to do it. She can afford to make more enemies. And it's why she was the best in the business. And it's why I hope that Fox finds a way for her to come back because the amount of people... And I get it. If you're a low-level level staffer and you have rent to make, of course you're not going to speak out against any of these people, and we, can't ex- and we can't expect them to. But the Brian Stelters of the world, the ones who claim that they want media accountability, and the ones who are famous enough that they know that they can't just get fired overnight or get thrown under the bus by some executive, they are the ones who need to be speaking out against this. Because otherwise, you know, Trump's attacks, attacks on the media, they kind of stick. If the media doesn't want to be called the enemy of the people, maybe don't cover for a literal billionaire pedophile. Yeah, I, I, I do sort of feel like um, I, I'm getting to the throwing rotten tomatoes at people stage. W- with exceptions, Tim Carney, I'm probably not going to throw rotten fruit at him. There does seem to be like a lot of not only incompetent reporting, but also active suppression of important stories because they don't, they would, you know, maybe they would go against the bottom line or they might jeopardize your access to, to other people or whatnot, which, you know, at that, at that point, like, what's the point of having oppressed if that's the way they're going to behave? Yeah, no, I mean, certainly. It's funny, whenever I go back to California, I live in D.C. now, and whenever I go back to California, most of the people in my personal life back there are all left of center, not some super leftists, some mildly liberal, a few conservatives. And they always kind of expect me to 
me to be sparring constantly online with with liberals or liberal journalists. Quite frankly, like there are a lot of people at outlets where I disagree with some editorial decisions, but I like a lot of the reporters at Vox. I'll DM, you know, people at the Daily Beast. Like a lot of these folks are good reporters who care about getting down to the truth. This is then I think when people don't understand it isn't, yeah, the left right thing. It matters when it comes to some political media. But Bill Clinton and Donald Trump were buddies until 2015. So it's not as it's 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 a lot more about power versus us, the little guy. And and I think that's that's why digital media, I think, has been so important. You know, that the New York Times, they were not aggressive at the Epstein thing at all until after the Miami Herald did the original expose late last year. I'm not saying there's a conflict of interest there, but there are stories that I think galvanize the public that 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 the establishment media doesn't necessarily care about, or they wouldn't want to ruffle anyone's feathers by looking too much into it. So I'm going to end on perhaps an odder note or whatever, but I I noticed that you're, you have a a degree in mathematics, I guess. Yeah. And in fact, when I was doing uh, preparation for the show, I found some like video lectures that you had done about ancient mathematics, like (laughs) ancient Egypt or medieval France or whatever. So um, which is interesting. So how did you, how did you, having studied math, you know, how did you end up in journalism? And then the, does the math background help you at all? Uh, because it, it doesn't seem, again, I don't want to engage in vicious stereotyping, but journalists don't always seem the most numerate as a class. <laughs> yeah. So it was an econ math dual degree. And the way that my math degree helped me is that it was a humbling experience and it makes me not rest too much on my laurels. Um, I was I was an A student in econ. I was a B minus student at math and I had to bust my butt in order to be somewhat decent at it. So, I mean, it was a, it was a good humbling experience. And honestly, I, I did it because the way I saw it, commentary and journalism, that was my dream career. I understood the the ROI and the risk factor involved. So I was like, if that doesn't pan out, I can just go back to the drawing board and try and like beg my way into a McKinsey job or go get an MBA if the whole journalism thing didn't work out. Luckily, it's working out thus far. Uh, but yeah, no, th- those those videos have have come back to haunt me, but I've left them up online because I just think they're funny at this point. One, one final question for me. We recently, I guess a few months back, we had Jay Caruso on the show. And I, I really was just kind of curious if you have any interesting dirt on him. <laughs> for, for that matter, Tim Carney, he's been on the show as well. Uh, you know, I mean, all of us just like our... our Never Trump cucky conservatism. We spend all day just planning out whatever cocktail party we're going to next. No, um, Jay is lovely and Tim is the best boss. And I, I'm very lucky. I am very, very lucky in my employment. All right. Jay and Tim, if you're listening, you know, the holidays are coming up. So yeah, I got to get all ready for conservative ink Christmas, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay. Thank you for having me. 